You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 58, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. And today's expert is Dr. Wayne Jonas. Dr. Jonas is a practicing family physician, an expert in integrative health and healthcare delivery, and a widely published scientific investigator. Additionally, Dr. Jonas is a retired lieutenant colonel in the Medical Corps of the United States Army. From 2001 to 2016, he was president and chief executive officer of Samueli Institute, a nonprofit medical research organization supporting the scientific investigation of healing processes in the areas of stress, pain, and resilience. Today's discussion is going to focus on self-care, the integrative health, and why that matters to you, why it should matter to physicians, how one could incorporate it into their practices, why it's not taught more at medical schools, why you don't see it very often in physicians' offices, and we're also going to get into a little bit of the military and VA healthcare systems. I don't know a whole lot about it, and I'm not sure how much you might know either, but I thought it would be interesting to have someone on who has experienced both systems to talk about the differences, what he thinks the problems and the advantages are of such a system, and how they can incorporate greater sweeping changes to potentially involve integrative health and large system changes to improve health care for veterans and active military personnel. And then, of course, the corollary is, can you apply this to the civilian sector, a.k.a us. Links for the show can be found at theparadox.com slash 058. Also, I'd recommend that you go to your favorite podcast player. And if you've not already, please subscribe, leave a five-star rating at your favorite podcast player, and continue to share the show with your friends and families and colleagues. If you feel so inclined, you can go to the Patreon support page at patreon.com slash theparadox. That's P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S. And there you can become a monthly patron to the show, get a shout out, potentially some other content and an easier way to get a hold of me if you have any show ideas or comments. You can also do that through the email at the paradox.com website. But without further ado, Dr. Wayne Jonas, author of How Healing Works and former director of the Samueli Institute, which studies integrative health. Enjoy. Well, it's a great pleasure. I have Dr. Wayne Jonas here. And Dr. Jonas, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Well, thank you, Dr. Larson. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate both what you do to get the information out that you do, and I uh, you know, hope I can contribute to that. Right, and we were talking a little bit beforehand, and so you're worried that you're going to be interviewed by two docs, but you did not realize you were half of the I'm, I'm the other doc, the right. I'm, we're, we're the paradox. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to kind of uh, introduce you a little bit to my audience, and uh, you've had an extensive history in practicing medicine within, I guess you'd say, the government or at least with the military, uh, in Walter Reed, and then uh, some appointments doing, as a family practice physician, you're working with integrative health. So why don't you explain to people, I mean, I think everyone knows what a family practice physician is, but 
kind of give a back a background of what what you mean and what most people talk about when they talk about integrative health and how that sort of affects one, one, how one would practice. Yeah, so uh, thank you. I, I, so I stumbled upon this in my journeys uh, actually through the military originally. So I was, you know, am a regular family practice doc. I still see patients in a military hospital and practice standard, you know, primary care. But during my journeys, I was at Walter Reed, and then I was at NIH, ran the Office of Alternative Medicine. I ran a WHO, World Health Organization, traditional medicine center, which looked at um, practices from around the world, such as Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and other types of things. We were looking at it through, you know, Western scientific lens and trying to do research in those areas. And I actually got exposed uh, to many of the so-called complementary practices that now I think uh, some of which should be integrated, some of which shouldn't be. Uh, when I was in Germany, I ran a hospital in Germany as a military doctor and worked closely with the, with the, with the German physicians in, uh, in our area. They did all our emergency transport and everything. And they were using, this was back even in the early 80s, they were using uh, acupuncture regularly for pain. They were prescribing herbs for depression. Homeopathy was prominently done. And so, uh, you know, I thought, gee, you know, do they have a bigger evidence-based medical bag than I? They seem to be uh, rational people, uh, but they're using uh, kinds of stuff that I either didn't hear about or just heard about as sort of non-science and nonsense. And so I began to sort of inquire about this. I went and started to study with a little bit of them. I began to look into the research in these areas. And that exposed me to really a whole world that, uh, you know, I hadn't seen in, uh, in my standard medical training. It really did open up my lens to viewing uh, a broader view of how healing happens. And over the years, I've realized that that broader lens is, is not just putting more things in your medical bag, but it's actually a perspective change. Uh, that many systems of care, especially some of the older traditional systems, including Western medicine, you know, Hippocratic-based medicine from the West, was much more holistic than it is today and much more holistic than what I viewed that it acknowledged and incorporated into care, uh, you know, the whole person, meaning their environment that they were in, their lifestyle and behavior, their social and emotional components, their mental and spiritual components. And I had sort of found myself on a treadmill of, uh, you know, coming in and prescribing pills and procedures and not really connecting with the other aspects of my patients, which the data now shows and that we know quite well influences significantly influences health. Uh, in fact, mm -hmm. we, we know that things that go on outside the doctor's office, lifestyle and behavior, especially for chronic illness, social and emotional uh, environments, social determinants of health are a much bigger influence on actual health outcomes. Uh, some estimate up to 80% more than healthcare. And so, you know, uh, healthcare, uh, you know, seems to be contributing a smaller and smaller amount to the improvement of our population's health in chronic diseases, especially. Now, if you're dying, you've got an infection, you've got trauma, you've got something needs to be removed, mm -hmm. you know, cancer, or, you know, acute heart attack or something, we're stellar. We can keep you alive, right? 
Uh, and we're really good yeah. at that. And who wants, and who doesn't want that? Everybody wants that. Uh, but when it comes to preventing and improving health and chronic disease, we sort of lost our way. And, uh, and so I began to look into how can we regain that? How can we get back to the path and reintroduce the concept of healing into medical care and not just deal with the pathology and the pathogenesis? Yeah, and that's and that's interesting. And what's what's funny about it too, I think, is that if you think about it, and if someone if someone didn't have any medical training, well, like a number of people who are in my audience, of course, uh, it's not it's not really revolutionary to think that there's far more that affects your health than how your limited visits to the hospital or to your physician's office. I mean, I think we all know that if you don't take care of yourself, you don't sleep, you don't eat properly, you don't exercise, you don't do some, you know basic things, that your health is not going to be good. And no, ma and no matter what kind of doctor you have taking care of you, it won't really matter. And so I think, you know, on a basic level, everyone probably fundamentally understands that. Well, I think you're right. They do understand that. And the recent survey, we recently did a, a, a commission to survey the organization I work for, Samueli Foundation. We recently committed, uh, com commissioned a survey from the Harris Poll uh, to, from the Harris organization to do a poll of both physicians and patients to gain uh, some sense of what their beliefs and attitudes were about these kinds of behavioral self-care approaches. And uh, what was remarkable about, about it was that the physicians, even more than the patients, believe it or not, really felt like self-care was a, a core part of not only what needed to, to be done, but what physicians themselves should be talking to their patients about. But, when then, but then when we ask the patients, you know, did the physicians talk to you about that? A very small percent actually said that. Uh, they said, well, you know, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I'd love to talk to my physician more about, uh, you know, the behavioral part, the lifestyle part non-medical part in terms of its impact on the prevention and treatment of my illnesses, uh, but they don't talk to me about it. And then when we asked the physicians, the physicians said, oh, I did talk to them about it. <laughs> and so there's a real communication <laughs> gap going on here between docs and patients about what is self-care, how do we get it, um, and, uh, and, you know, are we really communicating and connecting about, about it? And I think... Uh, Part of that is, is because we don't actually have a system that really, where the healthcare system, the medical system itself, really supports patients in that pro process. Yeah, maybe, maybe physicians did mention, well, you know, you gotta eat healthy and you, know, uh, you, know, you should get sleep and, and uh, you know, exercise is important, but did they really provide them with resources to make those kinds of changes or did they really connect to the community components that were needed to do that? Because we all know that behavior change like that is not easy. Um, and so if we believe it's important, as 96% of the physicians said it was, uh, then uh, you know, why don't we structure our delivery system so that we uh, make sure that happens? And I think that's the big thing, is that, uh, that we need to redesign our healthcare system in a way to facilitate what we know are these underlying determinants of health if we expect healthcare to actually be part of the solution of delivering health and not part of the problem of increasing costs and, uh, and, uh, and you know, poorer outcomes. So. 
What, what, uh, let's back up a second. And why don't you just define what self-care is? Because, I mean, I think I'm reading through your materials, but even when someone mentions what do you, you know, what self-care is, it may not be clear what exactly it is besides like eating right and exercising. Well, you know, those are the core things. I mean, there's four things that I teach my residents and that I do in my practice Four simple questions around self-care. And they have to do with nutrition. They have to do with activity, physical activity. And they have to do with sleep and they have to do with stress and stress management. And what are, what are you doing to manage those things? Those are the core activities that we know impact diseases like hypertension, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Uh, even an increasing evidence shows that, uh, that cancer and uh, dementia, mental health, are influenced significantly by those types of behaviors. And so those are the key questions that should be asked uh, to patients uh, about, you know, what are they doing in these areas? And then can I help you or particularly can my team help you? Because actually docs aren't very good at helping patients do this. Uh, but can my team help you uh, enhance those kinds of behaviors in your life? And uh, so that's uh, the data shows actually from population health studies that's about 30-40% of chronic disease determinants are due to those four factors. The other 30 or 40%, which make up about 80% of uh, the determinants of health, are social and economic factors where people don't have the ability to actually engage in those behaviors because they're in a food desert, for example, or don't have transportation or uh, or homeless, or, uh, you know, increasingly don't really even have the basics that are needed uh, in order to engage in those kinds of behaviors. And so increasingly, healthcare is, 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 you can't solve those problems, you know, we can't solve the homeless crisis, but we can ask questions about food and food insecurity and that type of thing. And we can then set up systems that connect uh, to delivering on those social needs to do that. And, and there's a number of models that have done this. Geisinger, just a uh, big health system up in central Penn, Pennsylvania, just got back from visiting them. Uh, they have set up a whole healthy foods program for poorly controlled diabetics that also have food insecurity. And they provided actually prescriptions for healthy food that was delivered by the local food banks. And then some education about how to use it. And they found that that simple approach markedly reduced their hemoglobin A1C, increased uh, the rap, you know, increased weight loss in that particular group, and it actually lowered costs because they were now developing less and less complications, less and less healthcare needs, and less and less medication use that was needed in those areas. Yeah. And so we somehow need to build into our delivery system questions about those underlying personal determinants of health for a patient uh, and then make sure that we have a system that's set up to either help deliver that to them or to connect them to the resources uh, that are going to make that happen. Sure. And I think, you know, when you talk about self-care, when you talk about holistic medicine, I think it's pretty easy for a lot of physicians to sort of go down the quackery road like, well, this is all kind of, you know, acupuncture and all these complementary medicines. But I think it's probably important to think, direct, like you mentioned, I mean, it is, it is well known that a lot of these activities, which are simple and, you know, free, like going for walking or something like that, uh, they do significantly decrease disease rates, whether it's Alzheimer's or, you know, obesity and, and diabetes. And so 
it's it's probably not very smart to poo-poo them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Especially when they're right. I mean, especially when they're fairly they're fairly easy. It, I mean, you obviously are not writing a prescription for them. Uh, you obviously have to find a way to make it feasible for the person to succeed, be successful, and that's you know that's part of the trick, I suppose. That's it. But that's exactly to, right. To, to just discount them is probably not is not a really a good strategy. And and I always have thought this ever since probably when I was in residency that I would you know you have plenty of time in the OR to sit around and think, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Certain, especially like a medical student closure. Uh, and um, you know as much as we do like if you do a surgery and let's say you take out someone's appendix, fundamentally you have removed the pathogen, you know, the problem, but the, whether the person gets better or not is entirely dependent on the patient. I mean, there's some, I guess you could say not entirely, but maybe almost all of it, right? They have to have, uh, they have to be healthy enough to survive the surgery, to not develop an infection. They have to have, they have to eat the right nutrition afterwards to make sure they can, you know, they can have the cellular reconstruction, reconstitution of their, you know, skin or whatever. And so without that part, uh, you know, you can do whatever, you can do all the right things from a medical standpoint and still fail, right? I mean, so it is entirely dependent on the patient being able to heal on their own. And so it, it, I think by extension, it makes sense that chronic conditions that are problems for people would, you know, naturally have a lot of, this has to do with how the patient sort of, how they can heal and get through those things as well. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I think physicians underestimate the importance, uh, not the importance, but the influence that they can have and some of the simple things that they can do to markedly impact this area, you know, that, you know, traditionally they haven't thought as their area of expertise. You know, there's a whole science of behavior change. It's actually been well researched. We know how people get ready for behavior change stages of readiness, et cetera. There's an entire science to do that. None of us in medical school learned how to do that. Maybe we learned a little bit about motiv- motivational interviewing or something like that, but we really didn't learn about the whole sci- the science of that. But we could actually bring that into our practices, you know, using properly trained health and wellness coaches, for example, group approaches, that type of thing that actually does effectively help people make those kinds of changes. Uh, there's also some very simple things we can do. Uh, uh, you know, before you started this uh, podcast, we were talking about a, uh, a simple uh, self-care toolkit that was brought into the perioperative setting. So this was given to patients before they went into surgery, and it involves some simple self-care things, education about what to expect, what to do before and after the surgery. It involved imagery. It involved uh, some little uh, acupressure bands uh, and a couple other things. Uh, and simply giving, we did a randomized controlled trials in which we simply gave patients this self-care toolkit. And we saw remarkable improvements in post-operative recovery. Less uh, pain, less nausea, less medication use uh, post-operatively. Uh, and in two weeks out, we even saw lower inflammatory markers uh, in this. And so these are simple things that physicians can do to incorporate into their practice. And, uh, and I put on my website a bunch of tools that others uh, that, uh, you know, uh, those in primary care and other care can use to begin to implement those kinds of questions uh, and those kinds of treatments into practice. Uh, so it is possible to do this. It's possible to do it. It's possible to have a big impact 
Uh, and the motivational part is uh, really one of the physician's main jobs. They need to ask the questions, they need to emphasize it, but then they also need to set up uh, you know, their team to support and assist uh, the patient in doing this. And if the patient is successful in even one small thing, then this empowers them, and then they're on the road to healing, right? And then you can bring in other things into yeah. that process. It's not just give them, you know, uh, a diet sheet and say, here, eat that. There's a, there's a great, uh, I'll just mention one other thing. There is a great orthopedic practice down in um, Austin, Texas. It's part of the Dell Medical School. And uh, they have embedded into this orthopedic practice uh, social workers to look at mental health, nutritionists that look at weight and diabetes control, um, uh, non-complementary uh, 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 practitioners that provide chiropractic and acupuncture and other types of things. And when a patient comes in who you know, is looking for a knee replacement or back surgery or something like that, they first assess them in these other areas. And then if, uh, the, if they can address, if they can lower the BMI, if they can improve their, their you know, hemoglobin A1C, if they can, their diabetic control, uh, if they can improve their mental health and engage the patient in their own self-care and then do the surgery, they get much, much better outcomes. So much so that they've taken sure. full risk and said, we will pay for anything we can't do in a bundled per patient um, care for this area. And they've shown that they can reduce costs, make money off of it, uh, and, uh, and improve that by having such a holistic approach, even in a perioperative and surgical setting. Yeah, it's interesting because you have highly motivated patients at that point, and and I talk to when I talk to orthopedic surgeons, they'll they'll mention that the patients who are active and they will do exercises to try and strengthen their leg, for instance, before a total knee replacement, right? Even for doing that for a couple of weeks, trying to try and improve their strength in their uh, thigh, you know, quadriceps, yep. and that it makes a tremendous difference afterwards in their recovery. Right. It's I mean, they just do so much That's better. Right. And you've got to give people hope. You've got to realize that that they have the power actually to improve their own outcomes and support them in the process. Right. And when they do that, if they get engaged and empowered, uh, you know, then they will they will do this. So it doesn't take a whole lot to do it, but uh, you know, it, it takes a team to help them do it. Well, it's interesting. I when I always uh, interview patients, it's funny now that I see a lot less patients who smoke, for instance. Yeah. When I started my practice, there were a lot more people. Just less people smoke now than in the past. Um, right. A lot more people probably no. use marijuana than before. <laughs> right. They're more uh, over to other things. But, yeah. They're smoking different things. But uh, as far as smoking cigarettes, when, when, they, when especially culturally, if you ask somebody they're smoking, they're only thinking about cigarettes, right? That's right. Uh, but when I'll ask people they smoke, they say, yes, they do. I'll say, you should stop. And I kind of joke that, well, it's my primary care that, you know, I'm tr I've only got five minutes before, with it, before I go back to the OR. Right. But I've noticed that if I have some sort of evidence, and so I'll see a patient who might be in their 50s, and their hemoglobin is elevated, might be 17, you know, these guys who are basically showing signs of early COPD, right? Because they've got mm -hmm. elevated hemoglobin, which suggests oxygen starvation, and they're, and they're ramping up their hemoglobin. Yeah. And I will say, you need to stop smoking. They're like, yep. And I'll say, you know, I'm concerned because your hemoglobin's elevated, which suggests that you're, you're in early signs of COPD. And then the, it's amazing the different, like the look on their face, like, oh, you're not, it's not like, it's no longer a joke. Yeah. I don't actually know if it's, if it's more effective. I tend to think it probably is. I mean, I think it's more likely that they'll, you know, do something. I can 
I try and convince them if you stop smoking at least for two weeks, it's going to help with wound healing yeah. and you know things like it that. Will. Maybe once you're beyond there, you know, maybe then you can stay quit and save yourself some money at a minimum, right? Or uh, so. no, that's exactly right. Well, what the Dell this Dell Orthopedic Group does that's you know focused on value based whole person care uh, is that they say, okay, we're not going to do the surgery until uh, we're able to get you in better in better health. Okay, and then they then they have nutritionists and they have uh, you know, physical therapists and they have the chiropractors, they have the, 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 the mental health folks, the smoking cessation folks there to actually get them to that point. And they'll work on them for maybe two to four weeks and then do the surgery. And the outcomes are so much better that they actually save money on the surgery and they save money in the long run, uh, uh, you know, compared to just saying, well, we'll just take you and see what risks happen. And, and they make yeah. money actually off of it. It doesn't cost that much because they save so much money off of doing that first uh, that the overall costs are less. Right. Well, it's interesting because, you know, even in the a lot of the anesthesia literature, if we're finding that if there's something, some way you can reduce the stress, um, the stress on day of surgery, like let's say you're using a more a multimodal pain approach where you're just not using opioids, you're using, you know, acetaminophen, you're using ketamine, you're using uh, like a, pre, a gabapentin or something like that, you're, and you're using regional anesthetic techniques, yeah. that it, it, you will see a difference in the stress indicators, like you mentioned, the, right. the hormones, even months out from the surgery, it, which is a significant difference. So, I mean, it has an effect. I mean, I guess it's probably hard for us to quantify exactly what, from an outcome standpoint, how much it make, difference it makes. But if, it, if it's having that long-lasting effect, it's I mean, it can be nothing but helpful. <laughs> no, a, that's right. Now, imagine com combining those kinds of drug approaches to reducing stress physiological response with, with ones in which the patient can engage in and do themselves, like which was in the self-care toolkit. That's primarily what it did. Yeah, right. It helped the patient reduce their stress. Mm -hmm. They lowered their cortisol. They slept better, et cetera. Combine those things in an integrative fashion, and you've got integrative health care. <laughs> so... so I mean, I think it's right, and it's fairly simple. But you, I think it's pretty clear that these things are the low-hanging fruit. Let's say they're fairly inexpensive. I mean, handing out a self-care you know package is really really cheap. What do you think the impediments are for uh, for introducing more self-care in the medical schools and training? I mean, is it is what do you why do you think it's it's not taught? I mean, I didn't learn any of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, in med school. Yeah, I think there's, I think, you know, when we did the survey, what the physician said is that, because you know, we did physicians and patients in this survey, and they said the problem was time. They said, I don't have time to sit down and have these conversations with patients. I don't have time to practice self-care myself, and I don't have time to incorporate it into, into my healthcare visit. I don't get paid for that time. And so, uh, and that was the thing that they, that they primarily complained about. You know, the reality is they're spending that time elsewhere. They're spending that time later on when they see the patient back and they haven't done well. Yeah, right. Uh, and so it's not really a matter of just time. It's a matter of how do we design the time and deliver it. And also, uh, you know, we also have this, this sense, you know, uh, physicians tend to be a bit arrogant. I mean, they uh, maybe deserve it because they've gotten the most education, but um, we tend to work alone. We say, oh, well, I've got to make the, write the orders and somebody else carries it out, so I don't have time to actually do this. Uh, well, the reality is if you have your team organized so that you have somebody trained to be the kind of health coach to support the patient, but they're your extension, right? 
in that area, then it doesn't require that much more time. You can actually say, I think I want you to do this, meet with my health coach to engage in that process. And then the health coach can engage in the evidence-based approach to try to make that behavior change happen. So it's time, team, and tools. You know, if you organize your team right, you incorporate efficient tools in those areas, it can be, can be done. It's time if you think you have to do it all. And yes, that's going to lead to burnout. There's no question about it. And if you then have to do all the documentation, the administrative part of it, which, you know, docs are saddled with more and more, and you don't have someone that can right. help do that, then that's just going to pile on. And, and burnout, as was actually 25% of the physicians in our survey said burnout, literally burnout was the reason they couldn't engage in self-care. Uh, and so it's really redesigning the delivery of what you do in a way to make the time a more focused and effective on what the underlying determinants of health are. Yeah, I feel, I feel like uh, the healthcare system and the way the, the third-party payer system, whether it's government or commercial payers, really really tends to a system. It's still volume-based, right? It's still as many right. patients as you can see is right. how, you, how you get your how you get compensated to in order to hire the people to help you you know take care of people and so you know you're you're really strapped for time yeah. and to try and find some way to get to carve out time to really to i mean i think i watched good examples i watched a video on on your website where you talked about journaling yeah and you just told patients you know that they'd write down daily sort of how you feel and, and that over time they feel like they have more control over their life and sort of their emotions and and just helps them take, you know, better care of themselves. But even that exercise of t teaching someone how to do it probably takes you, what, five minutes, ten minutes? And and that is something that's going to eat up an entire time because most people have ten minutes with their physician. So if I'm a doc coming in, at, you, you're coming with hypertension, I know that if you had a better handle of your stress, that might help your, your condition as well. Uh, but I don't have, I, I can choose either to, you know, write a prescription for an ACE inhibitor <laughs> or, right. and talk to you about hypertension, maybe diet real quickly, or to try and do a thing in journaling. Well, they probably all have value, but I'm going to say, well, I'm not, I don't get paid <laughs> yeah. in some ways for, for doing the journaling. Right. And so it's a, it's a, it's a decision that's going to be always be the same. <laughs> the the, yeah. the outcome is always going to be the same for the most part yeah. for the practice. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's to the detriment of the, of the patient probably. And, and I would say even the physician, because you're probably not delivering the kind of care that you, you'd want to, but you're, you're strapped for time. That's exactly right. Well, and of course, time is simply the, our surrogate excuse for money, right? And you've said it right here. I'm not going to get paid yeah. for it. And so I've got to do what I'm going to get paid for. I'm going to get dinged in my system, in my practice, in my, you know, wallet, Etc. And so I'm, I'm driven. So we have to have a system that will cover the things that produce health and that the evidence shows produce health. Uh, and so we don't keep doing the things that don't do that. And yes, so there were, we are literally trapped in a system that pays for what we get, right? We pay for, yeah. uh, for a waiting until you know something happens that requires an acute intervention and we get paid a lot to do that so we're going to keep doing that and that will prevent us to from uh, uh, overall in the healthcare system from saving the money from the prevention self-care and even disease reversal kinds of things that can happen if we spent the time to engage with the patient so uh, you know i uh, i work in a in a military clinic so you can you know it's, in some ways it's a it's a little bit easier with that. It's a capitated system. 
you know, I have still have to document, you know, with coding, my RVUs and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't impact me immediately because I'm in a, in a capitated system. And we have set up in that system, and this is sort of value-based care. This is the way the where that all the policymakers and CMS and HHS, Health and Human Services, and others are all saying we have to go from volume to value. Well, I work in, right. a, in a value-based system, and so we've set up, for example, for our chronic pain and opioid use patients, an integrative whole-person pain system. And we sit down, uh, and patients come in, and they will spend, we'll have five or six patients that will spend the entire morning with our team. And I'll get to sit down with them, in some cases, for an hour, and I'll find out what matters to them. I'll ask them what matters in their life. Now, these are patients that have had back pain or multi-component pain or fibromyalgia, and half of them are on chronic opioids that we're trying to get them off. And they've seen everybody. They've gone to the surgeon, the pain clinic, yeah. the anesthesiologist, you name it, primary care docs here and there, and alternative practitioners also. And But no one has really sat down and organized how do you engage in the non-drug approaches effectively, and how do you engage in the self-care and behavior approaches that are going to improve your sleep, which will improve your pain, improve your stress, will improve your pain, uh, reduce inflammation from, you know, uh, you know, the smoking and the sugar that you're eating <laughs> in those areas. Yeah. And we will sit down and we'll spend the time with them, with health coaches uh, to do that. And then when they engage in that, and you, we've looked at some of this data over, you know, for people that have been on this, and they've spent a lot of money, they've seen a lot of people, uh, and then now they'll begin to get off opioids, they'll begin to get reduced pain, uh, et cetera. I saw, I saw a lady the other day who had 10 years of chronic low back pain, multiple, multiple interventions, stopped her job because of disability issues. Uh, and she was attempting uh, to stretch her back. She'd gone to physical therapy, but then that had been buried. Was on several uh, drugs, and um, uh, including mental health drugs because they told her she had depression, et cetera. And we got her engaged in a self-care program that involved therapeutic yoga, which is one of the evidence-based approaches that the American College of Physicians has recommended, by the way, in their guidelines for chronic back pain. And we got them, he got, we got her linked up with a properly trained therapeutic yoga practitioner. We set her family up to allow her to do that. We then supported her with a health coach and a, we have a behaviorist in the clinic and then got the pharmacologist involved to help manage her, you know, uh, her, her drug approaches. She finally, she engaged in this now in a, in a, we did a couple of other things that helped with acupuncture, helped with acute pain, that type of thing. Uh, and uh, over a period of about three or four months, she was able to reduce her pain down to a level of two, start to function. In about six months, she says, I think I'm going to go back to work in those areas. Now, she'd spent 10 years <laughs> working with her pain, getting worse and worse and worse. And so, you know, we spent time with her, no question about it. We, you know, I sat down with her for an hour <laughs> and helped organize the team to do this. Uh, but when we were able to support her in that process, she started on her healing journey and she got better and that would have saved her a lot more time and more money than the healthcare system would have delivered over the next 10 years had she continued down the same path she was on. Right. It, it reminds me of our computers in our office, which this, this will actually make sense in a second. Yeah. So when I, 
about 10 years ago, we, we had a, we had the fix a guy who come in and he would, we have a bunch of mainframe servers in our, in our office that for all our billing and, and you know, there are things go awry all the time in it as any person who's in it listening to this, right? Well, no. And there's always someone there kind of fixing things. Yeah. And what we would pay this person hourly based on, you know, he had to come in and fix this, the, the server on Monday and then Thursday he's come in and fix the email system and whatever. And then we had a, we had another team come in and they said, hey, we want to take over your IT services. Our goal is to never be here. Our goal is to get this thing running smoothly. So you pay us and we'll just we'll be here to help if something goes wrong. But we're going to help you and set everything up so that it does it runs smoothly, right? I mean, there of course yeah. there's still problems from time to time. Yeah. But overall, it's a much better experience. Our business runs much smoother, and uh, the you know the IT is better because it's because their incentives have changed, right? And yeah. I, I feel like in medicine it's the same way that for most of medicine it's designed, it's that volume base. And the problem, of course, is if we were to try and switch to a volume based system, which is, I think everyone intuitively thinks is a better idea. That you just how what is value for, and that's has to really be defined by the patient. Unfortunately, that's I think right. you know you can try and find metrics that that will you know broadly encompass populations, but we're all individuals who make up a population. And if I'm not satisfied with the value I'm getting from a per, uh, specific provider, then I'm going to find it you know yeah. not very <laughs> no value in there. And so. You know, our, I think the big struggle with the healthcare system is really to try and find a way for patients to take control of of how they are taken care of. And and I think you know, ultimately, physicians probably, especially primary care physicians. I mean, I think with specialists, you're going to be more episodic care generally, right. unless you're a cardiologist or, mm-hmm. or something, yeah, that's right. right? And that you just need to design a system in which case the the patients are controlling things, which is not how it is now. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And, you know, the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, came out with a whole report uh, two decades ago called Crossing the Quality Chasm, which was about how do you get high-value care in healthcare. Yeah. And <laughs> their number one, two, and three recommendations were basically put the patient in the driver's seat. And out of this came the movement called patient-centered care. And we still haven't figured out how to do that. And so how do you do yeah. that? Well, guess what? You ask the patient what's important to them in their life. <laughs> and then yeah. you hook up your healthcare support processes to try to accomplish that. That's value, right? That's patient-centeredness. Mm-hmm. So on my website, I've delivered a whole bunch of tools for healthcare systems and also patients to start and do something what I call as a hope note. And now, you know, we all do the SOAP note, right? In medicine, the subjective, objective assessment plan, that's, you know, that is trying to get at what's the matter with you and what's the diagnosis and the treatment. Well, uh, what I recommend is that fine, we have to do that. We have to know what the diagnosis and treatment is, but then for chronic illnesses, let's do uh, let's do a hope note. And, and this works actually in the, in the acute setting too. Uh, and HOPE stands for Healing-Oriented Practices and Environments. And it's actually a set of questions that you can do. And I find I can do this, if I know the patient already, I can do this in the same time that I would spend a regular office visit. I can do it in 20 to 30 minutes where I ask them about what matters in their life and I give them a little questionnaire ahead of time so they know what the dialogue is going to be. Uh, And they talk about what they're doing uh, to try to help themselves stay healthy and where they're interested in working. And out of that, by the end of that visit, 
We talk about their behavior, social and emotional component, even the mental and spiritual component, what matters to them, right? Uh, and then their yeah. physical environment. And then we come out at the end with the framework for doing a personalized health plan. You can do that within uh, you know, a few minutes, and then we have resources to then support them in accomplishing that plan. So it's very doable. So I recommend to everybody they do a hope note, uh, do a personalized health inventory, and they will be doing whole person integrative care in a way that addresses the core issues we've been talking about. Yeah, I've, I've interviewed a number of direct primary care physicians, and I don't know how familiar you are with that, mm -hmm. um, that approach to delivering care. Yeah. And I feel like this is sort of the way they, they, they practice in some ways, because they have a lot more time for their patients. They get to know them better than you do in the, I, I hate to call them mills, but they yeah. sometimes seem like that, where you're just trying to burn through patients as fast as you can, mm -hmm. have mid-level seeing all the patients, and you know, just try and get as many visits as you can through. Um, and so that they have, and and the incentives are aligned because the patient is they're paying for the service, and so for them, they're not going to be there if they don't think it's a value to them, right. and that way they're they're making sure they're getting. You know, it's it's just a I think it's a better it's a better way at how you you know restructure the entire health system. I don't know, but I mean I think that's certainly yeah. a good alternative, a way of sort of making it a little bit easier to try and incorporate the way you want to practice and the way the patient wants to um, have a you know the relationship they want with their physician. Yeah. I think that's that's right. I just actually ju I just gave a talk up at the annual direct primary care conference a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, yeah, I think you're oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do we scale that that type of a relationship based care? I think that's the key question, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and you know, of course, the number one satisfier for physicians, as I say all the time, in the show is your re relationship you have with your patient. That's right. And so anything you can do to to make that better is going to make physicians happier and less burnout, less problems. That's in the right. System. Um, you're, are you currently employed by the, by the U S government? Uh, I'm not, the, I, the military or I, I'm not, or? I um, practiced in the military. I was in the military for 24 years and did all kinds of different things and practiced the entire time. And, uh, but I now, uh, am a volunteer physician, uh, in come in and work in the integrative pain clinic, uh, at Fort okay. Belvoir. So I'm not employed, but I practice there. I'm like, I'm, you know, credentialed there. Uh, I bring in a lot of the integrative approaches into that pain clinic. It's a very large uh, family medicine residency program, training program. So we train uh, residents there. I'm on the faculty at Georgetown and the Uniform Services University. So I teach medical students there and also at, uh, at uh, University of California, Irvine, which our foundation has just given a large grant uh, to to Re to change its entire healthcare for healthcare colleges to more of a whole person integrative approach. They just started that process at UCI. And so I, I see uh, students and I see patients at those places. I'm, my, uh, the main reason for asking that question is I just wanted you to comment on the medical system because maybe people don't know, but there is obviously a different system within the VA and within yeah. the, um, the military, right? They're different. <laughs> How, how, what's it, what do you, are you familiar enough with the VA to comment? What's the difference between the military, the active military system and the VA as far as yeah. care, or are they the same? Yeah, no, they are not the same at all. And I'm very familiar with both of them. I take care of a lot of veterans also. And uh, I, I currently advise the VA actually on some of its whole person care system through a federal advisory board that I sit on. Uh, they're very different. I mean, the VA is, uh, is also a capitated system, meaning they pay for, you know, the patient care, 
but also have to document their workload. So they do an RVU-based system, so they have to code things and all that stuff. So there's sort of a uh, both the DOD and the VA sort of sit in between a uh, a full value-based care and a volume-based system. They're sort of yeah. So they right. got one <laughs> one uh, one foot on the dock of volume and one foot in the boat of value, and the boat's leaving. So they're trying to figure out what to do. Um, yeah. in those areas. But the v- the VA has uh, just created brand new program this year. Uh, I think something that is really a radical transformation uh, of how we could move a large system into the direction that we just talked about. Uh, it's called Whole Health. And if, you, if your listeners want to learn more about it, all they got to do is Google wholehealth.va.gov. And it is a restructuring of the delivery of healthcare that empowers the patient, educates them, and then brings the treatment part into alignment with that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's really a, a very effective, it's new. They've set up 18 centers of excellence around the country to begin to kind of implement this, evaluate it, see what impact it's having, adjust it in, in very, a variety of different types of settings. And their plan is then to roll this out across the VA over the next three years, uh, building on the success of those uh, 18 uh, centers of excellence. So uh, that is an example of how a system could transform itself. There are civilian programs that are doing this. I mentioned the Geisinger program and our Mountain Health, certain uh, certain parts of the Kaiser program are really doing this. Uh, and so, you know, they're not military or government systems, but they're moving in the same, same direction. Yeah. Well, and I mean, my experience, first of all, vets are the best patients to take care of. I, they are so much fun. Uh, certainly as a medical student, that was my, I think the best experience was going to the VA, mainly because you had so much freedom to do what you wanted. I think it's sort of like the way medicine used to be yeah. <laughs> back in the, 80s is training, you know, from a training yeah. standpoint, if you're a medical student or a resident, or even the fellows, they have a lot, you know, they're, they're, you're a lot of independence. Um, yeah, no, and, and that's right. And, and, and I was going to say, as our population ages, and more and more people, uh, largely because we can keep them alive, right? Medicine is successful in keeping you alive. So, yeah. you, so you age, right? Uh, as the population ages, more and more people end up with complex multi-component core mobile diseases. They have lots of different kinds of conditions. And it's this kind of whole person model that we need to deal with that. And vets are a great example of that. I don't see a vet person, I don't see a veteran with, uh, with pain in my clinic that doesn't have two or three other core morbid conditions like uh, PTSD or depression or something or diabetes or weight issues or something like that. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, these things, we need a different way to approach that type of a patient. Right. And I, and I feel like when I take care, when I've taken care of vets, they almost, uh, at least the ones I've spoken to, they almost all would rather have their care, not in the VA. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, when, they, they should look uh, at the whole health program because that's going to change things actually for the VA. <laughs> Uh, it, well, it, I mean, that's great. Because and, and in mental health, the VA is far ahead of the civilian sector in terms of mental health care. So, uh, so I think it depends a lot on what they have. And, you know, the reputation is of the VA not, uh, not you know, being very good, I think, is, a, is a, a myth now because they've invested a huge amount in process improvement. And you can get some of the best care for uh, whole person and mental health in some of the VAs. Now it's a big system. It varies. The quality varies. 
as it does in any large system. Sure. Uh, you know, some aren't very good yeah. and some are, you know, superlative. And so, uh, you know, so you have to pick like you, like you do any, any place. Do, do you find, I guess, you know, one question is why are there, why is there a, a DOD? Why do they have their own system and the VA? Why are they not combined? Or is this a, well, they large scale government problem. Yeah. Well, they have. I mean, yeah, first of all, they originated differently. Okay. I mean, the DoD were, and they have different missions. The DoD is largely it's much younger people. So you know, less. Uh, you know, you 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 know, you're in the DoD because you've got to be ready to fight a war, right? So right, your goal right. is to stay ready. You've got to stay fit. You got to stay ready. It tends to have people that are not. Uh, you know, as old, and so they don't have uh, the same chronic diseases. They got to keep fit in those areas because they got to be ready to go. The VA is folks who are finished with that. Okay, so they've yeah. been there, they've done their service. They're no longer uh, you need to be ready to fight a war. Sometimes they've now suffering from the consequences of having done that. We see that now with the veterans that have come back from. Uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, been blown up and PTSD and all kinds of musculoskeletal issues. And they come back and now they're getting older and now they're handed over to the VA and their goal there is, you know, can we keep these people functional, healthy, et cetera. So it's different goals and different missions. Uh, and they are two different systems uh, because, you know, they're trying to do two different things, uh, both using health and maintaining health. Uh, you know, uh, in, uh, in, the, and they, so they're very, very different systems and they have different goals. Um, so, you know, they couldn't really be merged, I think effectively because, uh, you know, we did a, you know, we, we need to keep people, uh, fit and, uh, active. And then when they get old and can't actually fight a war, uh, they should be sitting in the, the logistics room helping to direct it, but not out right. there on the battlefield trying to shoot down the bad guy. Right. right? I understand. <laughs> Do do you think it would? Do you think it would be better if the VA were, uh, if all the money that was spent to the VA was given to the vets to enter the commercial, the normal sort of the regular market with the rest of the Americans, or do you think there's because they're veterans, there's a, you know, I I just feel oftentimes there's with all the scandals, you know, the shortage and the and the long wait sometimes that they're not given the care they might, you know, they probably deserve, sort of earned. Do you think they'd be better off sometimes in the commercial system, or do you think that? these reforms are well, going to you know, transform the VA. I, into I better think system. we need to make sure we are investing enough resources in providing access to good medical care uh, for our, all of our veterans. And if they're in a place mm -hmm. where, you know, they can't get that medical care for whatever reason out of the VA system, then we should make sure that they can get it out of a, uh, you know, a civilian system. And that's, there's a current act called the mission act that is, you know, moving in that direction. The key word in what I just said is good, okay? Uh, the variability yeah, right. within the civilian system, especially for mental health, is worse than in the VA. And uh, that's sure. been documented. And, uh, and in fact, the quality of general care has been compared between VA and the civilian sector. And uh, it tends to be higher within the VA, okay? And so if uh, a a veteran cannot get access to good medical care. They should be provided with medical care on the outside, but it needs to be good medical care. So that means the VA should be paying for high quality. So they need to evaluate and make sure that they're getting high quality care. Uh, the other thing is that the civilians don't really understand, very often don't understand the culture 
uh, and the special needs that might be uh, derived from a veteran. And so they have to have embedded that kind of care into their system to provide it if they're going to, you know, optimally care for them. So I think if that happens in the civilian sector, if the requirements for paying for it in the civilian sector, uh, you know, you know, were such that they provided high quality care outside, then this would improve access for veterans and take care of veterans overall as a whole better. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about self-care and even the questions about the various military uh, uh, medical systems, which I'm not too familiar with. Why don't you tell just people, first of all, how they find more about you? And then actually, if you want to mention what is, and I apologize, I didn't even know about your book until I was doing some research, but can you just tell briefly about what, how healing works and what the book is about? And then um, basically how people can find you and maybe a little bit about the Samueli Institute real quickly, what they do. Yeah, so I wrote this book in order to uh, describe in a clear and effective way what I learned from having really traveled all over the world looking at a variety of healthcare systems through a scientific lens, uh, you know, having uh been running the Office of Alternative Medicine at the NIH, a World Health Organization Center, and having been trained at Walter Reed and actually taught research at Walter Reed on these areas. What I learned there and I, what I learned in my own practice is that taking care of the whole person uh, and facilitating healing, what I call salutogenesis, uh, uh, you know, the creation of health. Saluto is health, genesis is uh, creation. And not just the pathogenesis, uh, what I learned in medical school, the treatment of disease. Yeah, Combining right. these into an integrative approach uh, provides a superior system. And it, in fact, is the system that we need for chronic care management, uh, you know, in our world today. And so I learned these lessons. I wanted to be able to communicate it to the public. And so I wrote the book to describe how I learned this. And then at the end of the book, I write about how do you actually make this happen in the day-to-day -day healthcare system that we have today. And so uh, we created tools to do that that I use in my own practice, that I teach in medical school and residencies. Uh, and then we are supplementing that, uh, those tools that I described in the book, How Healing Works, with additional tools uh, on my website. And my website's simply my name, drwaynejonas.com, all one word. And we're constantly putting new tools onto that website for your average clinical uh, doc and clinical system to put into their system to deliver whole person integrative health. Uh, there's a whole section that we're about to break out for patients so that they can begin to be proactive in this process ask their docs, do an integrative health, do a hope note uh, with me so that I'm addressing my own personal determinants of health and integrate that with the medical treatment. And so if there was anything your listeners could do tomorrow, uh, they could go there, they could look at those tools, they can begin to implement those things, uh, you know, in their practice on a day-to-day -day basis. And we're always looking for more ways to make it easier for this to happen. Uh, and so if they come across any uh, they can email me. The, my email is on the website, drwaynejonas.com, and I'm happy to look at those uh, and see if we can incorporate them and make them wide, more widely available. Well, thanks again for taking this time out of your night for uh, talking to me. 
And uh, all the uh, links for, for the website that you mentioned, the VA article, and maybe other episodes that are related to this will be on the website at theparadox.com slash 058. Dr. Wayne Jones, thank you so much. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Larson, for what you do here. And thank you for the, the time and the great discussion. Have a good evening. My pleasure. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.